Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Maybe want to just give your body a quick shake before you sit down. Wrap up warm. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to Mark chapter 8? Mark chapter 8. We're going to read a little bit of that shortly. But before we do that, let's talk about sports. I don't know if you're a sports fan. You like watching sports, whatever your particular sports are. There's cricket going on at the moment. There was rugby yesterday. There'll be football this afternoon. All those sort of things. But my um, favorite sport is American football. I've loved it for years and years. And just a couple of weeks back, we had uh, the big finale of the season, which was the Super Bowl. I watched the Super Bowl with Ben in a hot tub. But that's a whole other story. But one of my favorite games that I've watched, and if you're a sport fan, you'll have had this experience, was a Super Bowl a couple of years back when my favorite team was playing, the New England Patriots. And I stayed up <clears throat> late into the night to watch it, and I was watching it with my dad in our front room, and my team were doing badly, like really badly. And it got to half time, and they were being annihilated. And it got to that point where you're, it's 1.30 in the morning, and you're like, why am I staying up? to watch this because it's just, it's horrible when your team's there and you're rooting for them and they were getting thrashed. They were 28-3 down, which if you're anything in American football, that's big margin of um, losing. And it was like, I'm just going to go to bed. But because my dad was there, I couldn't. I couldn't just like strop off upstairs, which I felt like doing. I thought, I can't do that because that doesn't show me very good. So I'll wait. So I sat and thought, I've got to endure this to the end. But then something happened. After halftime, the game changed, and the game changed spectacularly. If you want to go and look it up, please look it up. Super Bowl 51, Patriots-Falcons, the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history where they scored 31 points unanswered, won the game 34-31 uh, in the end, but they won the game, and they came back from a huge victory, and the game changed after halftime. It was like they were two separate games. Something happened in the middle where it just turned around. And what we've got today in Mark's gospel is we've got to the halfway point of the gospel. Today is the middle. We've made it thus far, and the game is going to change. The event that we're going to read about today is the game-changing moment that sets the course for the remaining eight chapters of this gospel as we roll down to Jerusalem, where we'll hit it in kind of summertime. So a quick recap. We've done uh, sections, uh, verses, uh, chapters 1 to 8, where it's, it's all been based in Galilee. We've seen uh, Jesus has come. His question, who is him? He's demonstrated the kingdom. He's proclaimed the good news. He's called people to repent, both Jew and Gentile. He has performed miracles amongst them, and he has demonstrated that he is the one who has come from God. In fact, he is God. He is God's Messiah, and he's come from people, but he's found opposition. He's found rejection. He's found dullness. He's just found people saying they don't get it, and we're in this middle section where it's now on the way, and that phrase on the way comes up several times in the passages we'll look at last week, this week, and the coming weeks. We're in this short middle section, and in the final long section will take place in Jerusalem, and we have the hinge of the gospel here, the turning point of it. And we're going to read a little bit on the screen, 
um, of this section, and hopefully you can kind of highlight what that bit is I'm alluding to there. Last week we saw the fact that the Pharisees rejected Jesus, we saw that the disciples didn't understand who he was, and then Jesus healed a blind man who suddenly could see things, and we looked at what it meant to see who Jesus was. So let's read this section. We're all going to do it together. There's only four slides today, <clears throat> so I'm going to count us down, and we're going to do one, two, three, and then we're going to read this out big, loud voice, and then we're going to dig into this. So, one, two, three, go. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and the others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Could we change the slide, Sarah? Thanks. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after he has come with power. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. Right, big idea. Following Jesus means confessing him as Lord and follow his teaching and example in life, even to the point of death. Let me read that again. Following Jesus means confessing him as Lord and following his teaching and example in life to the point of death. So, this is the turning point. This is the game changer where Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. What began in verse 1 of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark wrote out his title, this is what the story is about, Peter now sees for the first time. And up to this point, no one has seen it. There's been those who've opposed to it, those who've just missed it. Um, there's been a few responses to Jesus, faithful responses, um, but they've been from outsiders. They're the unclean woman did it, the Syrophoenician woman, even the deaf mute, who was an outsider, saw who Jesus was. And up till this point, we've had 
Mark, the narrator, has said, we know, I know who Jesus is. God the Father has said, I know who Jesus is in the baptisms. And demons have said, I know who Jesus is. And finally, a human gets to say it. And we're going to look at two people, two groups in this. We're going to look at the disciples and we're going to look at the crowd. So first off, we've got the disciples and they have the revelation of the Messiah. So it says, Jesus went on with his disciples. The language there implies a deliberate beginning. Something new is starting. And they went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which was further north than Galilee, where most of this action has been happening. And this was a non-Jewish city. This was a Gentile territory named after Caesar Augustus. That's where the Caesar bit comes from. It was at the foot of Mount Hermon. And the, the area was known as a place of worship for the god Pan who was a god of nature. Him and other gods and goddesses were worshipped there. And there was a grotto there. You can go and look these up, pictures where there were places of sacrifice and shrines. And Jesus was in that vicinity that was known for a place of worship of many different gods, many different deities. A lot of false worship was happening there. Many pilgrims would have gone there with him. And it says, on the way... That's this middle section of Mark's gospel. It says, on the way. So we're in this process. We're in on a journey of faith. And in that moment, Jesus asks his disciples questions. He's not waiting to the end of the journey when all's said and done. It's happening in motion. He's saying, you've got to make a response now. And he asks two questions. The first question he asked his disciples, when basically says, who do others say that I am? Now, not, rabbis didn't normally post questions to their disciples. It was the disciples who would come to the rabbi with questions. What about this? What about that? I don't understand this. Explain it to me. But Jesus is not the same as the other rabbis. He is different. And he poses questions to his disciples, to his followers. And the first one he says is, who do people say I am? And this in some way is a response to the question the disciples were asking back in Mark chapter 4 when they're like, who is this guy? What's going on there? And what they parrot back is the reflection of the popular opinion. Maybe it's John the Baptist, returned to the dead. He's Elijah, one of the prophets or something like that. And this is very similar to the response that Herod made in chapter 6 um, when the news got to him about Jesus he was like, what's going on? Because he had murdered John and he, he wasn't sure. And so it just reflects popular opinion. But what it does is it basically puts Jesus among many leading figures in Israel's history. Many great um, figures of history who would have done mighty works for God. But what it also does is it denies Jesus' uniqueness. Basically, the popular opinion is you're just one of many, Jesus All these other people we can name, they were pretty impressive. They did some good things. You're just one of those. And we even have that today when people look at Jesus and say, well, he's just one of many ways to God. He's one among many teachers, gurus, sages from the past. He's just one of these good moral teachers. Then Jesus then points it back straight to them and says, well, actually, who do you say I am? And this is the game-changing question. This is the most important question in the world. The most important question you will ever be asked. Who do you say Jesus is? And what Jesus does is he points it right back to his disciples. He gets the general consensus, but then he points them, looks them right in the eye and says, Who do you say I am? And at some point... All of us have to answer this question. We have to look deep within ourselves and we have to make a decision on this. 
And even no decision is still a decision. We have to answer the question, who do you say I am? And it's not a rushed decision because the disciples have been with Jesus for maybe up to a year at this point. They've been with him. They've heard his teaching. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen his life in action. They've seen what he's done. And Jesus finally confronts them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds on behalf of the disciples. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one of God. You are the sum of Israel's hopes. You're the one we've been waiting for. We're the one we've been longing for. We've been one, you're the one that the prophets have been talking about for centuries. You have finally arrived and you are here. And he is the first human in the Gospel of Mark to respond like this. And bear in mind we're nearly at the end of chapter 8. And he finally sees, and the disciples finally say, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, you are God's chosen ruler who has come into the world. There is a revelation there that they see finally who Jesus is. And in response to that, Jesus says, one, you mustn't tell anyone, you mustn't tell anyone because this was based on the theme we've seen running through the gospel where people misunderstand his mission. And what he's now going to do is outline his mission to his followers. And it's going to be game-changing what he says to them. Because now we have the mission of the Messiah. Verses 31 to beginning of 32. What it says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly to them. So first of all, we've got Jesus refers himself to, uh, uh, to, to himself as the Son of Man. This happens 14 times in Mark's Gospel, all from the mouth of Jesus. And it's used in several different ways. It looks forward to uh, the end times, uh, to Jesus um, as a judging figure, coming with references to Daniel 7. Um, it's also used to refer to his earthly authority, where he forgave sins, Mark chapter 2 when he forgave the, the paralyzed man's sin. But it's also used mo the most amount of times in reference to Jesus' suffering. As a son of man, as, a, as, as someone who is fully human, he's both fully divine but fully human, he will suffer and die, which is what he's going to outline now to his followers. And he says to them, he's going to teach them that they must suffer many things, or he must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests, and the scribes um, and the elders. And those three, the, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, represent the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And so basically Jesus is saying he is going to be rejected by, the, by God's people, by the authority figures of Israel, the ones that all the people would look to who have been the authority on the law and the Torah and the sacrifices and the temples and the ones who were kind of, who ran all that, a very theocentric community that Israel was, they are going to reject him. The best of God's people will reject God's Messiah, is what he's saying to them. And it won't be some angry lynch mob on the sign, a group of thugs who end him. It will be God's best who will end him. Those people who uh, think they're serving God, and they will end up killing him. He says he's going to suffer, and ultimately he's going to die. Uh, by those things. But it also then says he will rise three days. So there's a hinting then of the resurrection that's going to come. And it says at the end that he is going to speak plainly about this. This is the same language that was used for the blind man in the previous section, where he suddenly saw clearly. He says, They're like trees 
oh no, I can see now when Jesus healed him. And Jesus is now speaking for the first time to his followers plainly, simply about his mission. And he's laying it out for them. It revolves rejection, suffering, death, which will then be followed by resurrection. But you can't get resurrection until you get the first three. Rejection, suffering, and death. So that is Jesus' mission. Why have you come? Well, I've come to be rejected, to suffer, and to die. And then I will rise again. And then we get after that what? We get the misunderstanding of the Messiah. And Peter, God bless him, it says, it took him beside... And this takes... Peter, the Gospel of Mark, written by Mark, he was Peter's scribe. So a lot of this stuff would have been first-hand accounts of Peter to Mark about what happened that Mark wrote down. And Peter, in his humility, said, you never guess what I did when Jesus outlined his mission to me. I took God's chosen... I took him to the sides and I gave him a dressing down. It says, I rebuked him. Peter's inside and rebuked Jesus. Peter feels obliged to correct Jesus on his mission that he just outlined to them because it is so appalling and outrageous to him. And it says, He went beside him and it says, He went to rebuke him. The language of rebuking appears earlier in the Gospels in reference to demonic powers. So Peter is rebuking the Messiah in the same way the Messiah had rebuked the demons and told them to get out of people. So this wasn't a mild, you know, let's have a chat. You've been doing so well. You know, he went at Jesus. And Jesus, what did Jesus do? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter has gone from, you're the Messiah so actually, oh, you're Satan now. He has gone, talk about highs and lows in a few verses there. Satan just means adversary. So what Peter has done is Peter has seen the Messiah, has heard his mission, and then gone from being someone who's had a revelation of God to being his adversary. Because anyone who stands in the way of the mission of God and mission of what Jesus had come to do and the proclamation of that mission is an adversary to God's mission. And Peter had gone from someone who was on, the, on one side to on the other in a moment by trying to correct and deflect Jesus from what he came to do. <coughs> Peter's concept of the Messiah was, in essence, satanic. He couldn't comprehend the Messiah who was going to come, be rejected, suffer, and die. For Peter, the idea of a dying Messiah was unthinkable. For Jesus, it was completely inevitable. That is why he came. That is what he came to do. The passage then runs on. It says, he now, Jesus now calls the crowd. So he shifts from the disciples to the crowd. And what Jesus now explains to the crowd, so the disciples are there, he's now called the wider crowd that have been following him at this time, so they would have gathered more people. And he calls to them and he proclaims to them what their role would be if they are to follow him. It says, he calls the crowd together with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. What Jesus is addressing is if you have a wrong view of him as Messiah, you will have a wrong view of what it means to be his disciple. You need to have a correct view of Jesus as Messiah, and therefore you will have a correct view of what it means to follow him. And Jesus is addressing them all and saying, this is what it means to follow me. You are to deny yourself, you are to take up your cross, and you are to follow me. 
And he summons everyone, he calls them all to himself to explain that. And he says, this is what it looks like. And for us, we just need to refine our thinking on here because for us, when we think of bearing a cross, taking up of our cross, we use that phrase, this is my cross to bear. We think of some hardship and a bit of suffering that we might be going through, but that's not what the cross was about. That's not what the cross meant at this time. The cross symbolized um, pain, dehumanization, suffering, shame, and death. Cross equaled death, and it was a horrific way of getting there. So when you talk about the cross, the only result of the cross was dying, but it was preceded by days, weeks of horrific torture of what it meant to be nailed on there. And this was really particularly relevant for the Christians who were reading this in Rome, who would have been suffering under Nero's persecution where Christians were being crucified. And in the Roman kind of culture, crucifixion was just one of these weapons of mass terror that they used. I studied, I did ancient history at A-level, and the, the Spartacus Revolution, do you know about that? You know, I'm Spartacus. When that was put down by Marcus Licinius Crassus, I think it was three or 6,000, they crucified the gladiators they caught who had rebelled, and they nailed them every 100 yards along the Appian Way, which basically is the road that runs through the spine of Italy. And so there were hundreds, thousands crucified to warn anyone, do not rebel against Rome. And so that's what the cross meant. The cross was, it talked about hatred, oppression from the Romans. It talked about suffering and death. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, it is not something like, oh, we just, we've got to put up something with a bit of hardship for a period of time. Even for a number of years, it's actually, you are going to die and it's going to be horrible. And then what it does after that? He then explores the meaning for this for his disciples. What does it mean? And he makes four statements that all begin with the word for in our translation, so you can follow them through from 30, verses 35 uh, to 38. It says, for, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and forever loses his life for my sake will save it. We have an ABBA pattern here, Abba. Save, lose, lose, save. So what Jesus is saying, if you want to save your life, which is a, not just your physical life, but everything that comes with that, you are to lose it. You are to give it up. And those who do lose it will one day save it. And that is the message of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It is one who is willing to give up their life in following Jesus. One commentator wrote this, When confronted by the call to discipleships, disciples do not have a both and choice, both Christ and their own lives. They stand before an either or choice. The claim of Jesus is total and exclusive. It does not allow a convenient compartmentalization of natural life and religious life, secular or sacred. The person stands completely under Christ's claim. Those who will, lo- those who will save their life will lose it completely in following Jesus. And Jesus says, that's what you've got to do. That's what it means to be my disciple. That's what it means to follow me. You have to give up your life completely. And then he goes on, the next two statements. He says, So what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for your soul? And what the point Jesus is making is following Jesus means valuing your soul, your inner man, over everything the world has to offer. Everything the world has to offer. Even life itself. But all the things, the attraction, the toys and trinkets of the world, all the things that we run after... 
the home, the car, and the family, and the success, and the career, and the kids, and blah, blah, blah. Everything is valued less than what God has put inside you in your soul, and actually you value Jesus over everything. And if it means giving up any one or all of those, we do it for the sake of saving everything and following Jesus. And Because Jesus then ends, ends with a dramatic one, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory with his Father and with the holy angels. What it means to follow Jesus is being faithful to the end. So it means giving up everything in the sense of putting Jesus first and valuing him above everything and then persevering in that all the way to the end. Doesn't mean have starting fast and then fading and ending up somewhere else valuing other things. It means keeping going. How you finish matters. And Jesus uses this, this phrase, adulterous and sinful generation, which are words that were used uh, throughout the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel, the people of God, God's chosen covenant people. And he said, actually, they acted like that. They, they didn't keep going. There were many generations that chose to reject God and his word and his calling, and they didn't inherit what they could have inherited. And Jesus has used this phrase with his, uh, the Pharisees in the previous section, these were God, some of the most religious men in Israel, and actually they ended up missing who the Messiah was. And Jesus says, actually, those guys are like that. They're not persevering. They're not seeing. And Jesus is saying, we, you keep going. You keep going to the end, and then the reference at the end where he comes in glory, which is a, a looking forward to Jesus' second return uh, when he comes and everything gets wrapped up and everyone stands before him uh, and is judged. And then the final thing there is a fulfillment. Because Jesus says, truly I say to you, when Jesus used those phrases, it's obviously something of highly important that we should take extra focus and care of. And he says, there are those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it's come in power. And this is a word of fulfillment. And basically he's saying, all that I've predicted, all that I've said about rejection, suffering, dying, and rising again will happen in your lifetime. And we know, looking back, if you know the gospel stories, the disciples see Jesus crucified, but then they see the risen Jesus as well, and they experience something of that kingdom coming with power, and Jesus is saying, it's going to happen. This is my mission, this is what I've come to do, and you are going to see it outworked in your lifetime. And if you read through the Gospels and then on into the book of Acts, you see it then carried on and working out in the life of the early church and some of these disciples who are standing right here. And so what we've got here is we've got the game-changing moment of the gospel. We've got Peter seeing who Jesus is and him speaking on behalf of the disciples. So the community that Jesus has brought together of his 12 um, closest followers, they see him. You are the Messiah. But then we immediately get misunderstanding and actually, no, you're not the Messiah we're thinking of. These aren't the droids you're looking for. It's like, we're not seeing that. And then Jesus has to correct them strongly and say, if you don't have a correct view of me, you won't have a correct view of what it means to follow me. And then he outlines what it means to follow him. It means taking up your cross. It means being rejected. It means suffering. It means dying. It means being faithful to the end. It means valuing me above everything in this world and everything this world can offer. And this is it. And this is the moment where Everything shifts and now heads towards Jerusalem. And we know what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. 
We'll see the rejection, the rejection, and we'll see the suffering, and we'll see the death of the Savior, followed by his resurrection. But this is the moment. This is the moment where the, the, it shifts, and Jesus is heading in one direction. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's got to do. So what does this mean for us today? Let's land this in a couple of places. The first one is a decision needs to be made. A decision needs to be made. You need to make a game-changing decision. Who do you say Jesus is? I think by the Spirit of God, he's come and Jesus is asking us all this same question today. And it might be a question you've asked, answered many times over the years. It might be one that you've avoided asking. It might be one that you're just you're not sure about. But the questions being asked to us today by God's Word through me, to you, who do you say Jesus is? Because it's the most important question you will ever be asked, and it is the one that will shape your life for either good or ill, for, the, for God's kingdom or rejecting God's kingdom. And you have two choices. You accept who Jesus is, you accept what he's done, you accept what the Bible says about him and what he said about himself, or you can reject him. You can accept that Jesus was and is God the Son, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross in our place for our sins, rose bodily from death, ascended into heaven and now rules and reigns forever and will one day return in glory with his Father and the holy angels to judge all mankind. You can accept that we all stand guilty before this holy God from the sins we've committed in thought, word and deed, the things that we have done, the things that we should have done that we haven't done. All those things, and there only is one way to life and freedom, and freedom from the guilt and the shame that we have, which is through Jesus and his cross and his resurrection and our faith and trust in that. We can accept who he is and we can do that, or we can just totally reject it and think, nope, he's just one among many. It doesn't matter. And that's the choice you have to make today. What choice are you going to do? Are you going to accept it, accept who Jesus is, we have an Alpha course running right now where there's an opportunity to explore this further, particularly those who are like new and like, I'm not sure, please come and talk to one of us and we'll point you in that, get you involved in that. But there are them, them here today who know what they need to do and they just need to accept Jesus for who he is and what he said. Second thing that we need to do is we need to count the cost. We need to grow up in our faith. God's been saying that to us this year particularly time to grow up and it's something we need to do we need to count the cost of what he said jesus said it very clearly even says in the text and he spoke plainly about them we have god's word that we can look at anytime and it's plainly stated there what it means to follow jesus if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me and when we said at the beginning of the year, there are two responses to growing up in Christ, to counting the cost. You can accept the challenge or you can run and hide. And you know what you're doing. It's, it's easy to see, even as a leader and a pastor and looking at the church. I, I see some people who are accepting the challenges. I see them dealing with things, processing things in their life, unforgiveness, bitterness, things they've had. And I've seen people run and hide. Oh, I'm not going to church anymore because I can't face that. Running and hide. What are you going to do? So this is a call for anyone. It says, if anyone would come after me. So it's not reserved for professional Christians or super spiritual people or those religious ones or those keynotes. It's for all of us. 
If anyone, we are to deny ourselves, which means we are to no longer live for ourselves as the priority. We are to serve others. We are to be committed to others, empowered by the Spirit, empowered by the grace of God. We are not to live for the things of this world as the ultimate. We are to deny ourselves in terms of sin and not pursue that. With Some of you have sinful things in your life you know you need to get right and deal with. You can do that this morning. We're to deny ourselves letting good things become God things. There are lots of good things in life that we can enjoy, but when they become ultimate and God things, they are bad. And we can do that with our family, we can do that with our work, we can do that with our hobbies, our possessions, even our children. We can make them the ultimate. We are to deny ourselves and then make Jesus ultimate. We are to take up our cross We are to identify with Jesus and his people. We are to walk by faith after him, even through the difficult things of life. We are to live in the way Jesus lived, which means we are to proclaim the gospel. We are to to devote ourselves to prayer. We are to serve the poor, the broken, the alien, the stranger, the outcast, whatever that happens to do. We are to confront the works of the enemy wherever we find them and speak out against them. We are to live lives of integrity and holiness, and this, of course, will bring opposition. If they did it to Jesus, they'll do it to you. You will be rejected, you will suffer, and some of you will die for your faith. That's the way it goes for those who follow Jesus. And we are to follow him, he says, which means we are to live an active, day-by-day lifestyle. We're to have a long obedience in the same direction. We are to keep going. We are not to be one of those people who give up because it's too hard. Some of you, many of you, if not all of you, will know men and women who have followed Jesus and then for whatever reason they've given up. And I don't want to delve into the reasons why, but the binary is there. They were following him, they're not now. Don't be one of those. Jesus says, you are to follow me. We are to keep going. Don't give up on your faith. Do not give up the habit of meeting together. Do not give up on reading your Bible and prayer and perseverance, especially when it's difficult. And so what we need to do now is we need to make some decisions. So why don't you stand, and I'll lead you in some response. If the band can come up, because we're going to sing in just a bit as well. And so how are you going to change the game today? What are you going to do? How are you going to answer this game-changing question? Who do you say I am? And what I want to do is I'm going to press it on you and you're going to make a decision now. You're going to do it in the most important way, which is between you and Jesus. And I'm going to ask you to talk to him and tell him who you think he is. And you can make a response and no response is a response. And so maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hands, and you've got an opportunity to to talk to him now. Who do you say Jesus is? Why don't you answer that question now to him? There are those of you 
fact, there's all of us who need to commit our lives to Jesus. But there are those of you who have been through difficult times and it's just been hard. And you need to say, yes, I'm coming back to you, Jesus. Some of you have been doing great, but then you just as much need to say, Jesus, you are the Lord. You are God the Son. I'm coming back to you. Some of you have been away and out there. You need to come back and say, Jesus, you are the one you say you are. And that then will shape my life and affect you. I want to ask you another question is, how are you going to grow up this year? What do you need to do? We've had the theme running through all the stuff we've done in March. We began in January. How are you going to grow up in following Jesus this year? Are there priorities you need to reorganize in your life? Have good things become God things in your life and you need to reassess the balance? Because Jesus says we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. Are there things of this world that you've been living for that you realize actually they've been taking the place of Jesus in my life? I need to sort them out. Then you just need to repent, confess your sins, receive forgiveness, and move on from there. Whatever they are, I challenge you today to make a decision to follow Jesus. Make a decision to grow up this year. Count the cost. Some of you are going through terrible hardships, emotionally, physically. The call is still the same because we are to count the cost and we are to keep going. God never promised that you would pay off your mortgage, you retire with ease, and you'd be healthy and whole and happy the whole of your life. He never promised that. He promised that he would be with you, he would sustain you, he would give you grace to persevere, and you would keep going because he would be with you. And some of we need to readjust our perspectives on what we value and what's important. And we're going to keep going because he is our ultimate treasure. I'm going to pray. And we're going to worship a bit and see what God does. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to be rejected, to suffer, and to die. And we thank you that you rose again after three days. We thank you that you made a way where there was no way. We thank you that you dealt with our guilt and our shame at the cross so that we might stand holy and righteous before you, not because we're clever or, or good, but because you are gracious and kind and merciful. And God, we ask you now, you fill us with your spirit, that we may be men and women who make a decision to follow you and persevere in doing that. Lord God, we pray you give us grace to endure in times of hardship. You give us grace to be courageous in our faith, in proclaiming the good news of Jesus and living that out. And Lord God, I want to stand here and say, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the risen one, the holy one, the mighty God. King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, Savior, Healer, Redeemer. I want to say I love you and I praise you. And I thank you that you came and did what you did, that we may know you. And God's people said...